The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. There are lots of executive coaches out there. Maybe you work with one. Most of them focus on management strategies or how to communicate effectively. But then there's Jerry Colonna. He's known as the CEO whisperer or the career coach who makes grown men and women cry. His approach is pretty different. Jerry calls it radical self-inquiry. Two years ago, I wrote a story for Wired about Jerry, and I got to know him. He's sort of a figure in tech and media. He's both an experienced venture capitalist and a student of Eastern religions. We all have things we don't want to talk about, and these are the things that Jerry wants us to discuss. He believes that when we understand the things that scare us, no matter what our jobs are, we'll be better leaders. And he has really practical advice. He shares his approach to meetings. He talks about the importance of asking open-ended questions and listening for the answers. And he went through his approach to daily journaling with me. But we also dug into his larger philosophy. We began where Jerry usually starts. You know, Jesse, the first question that's really uncomfortable that I often ask people is, how are you? And isn't it interesting that when I see, because what I say all the time is, no, really, don't bullshit me. Like, how are you? I am genuinely interested in the person's life story. And I think that's radical. And I think it's radical that I ask, I, I think there's, a, there's, an, there's an, a, a, a discomfort in actually slowing down and pausing and being able to answer that foundational question, how am I doing? And I think that's the heart of it. We're wired, socialized, to actually not even pay attention to our hearts, let alone the hearts of those with whom we work. It's so true. It's so hard to actually answer the question of how you are. The hard part it would seem on the surface is to disclose to you how I actually am. But the harder part is to disclose to myself exactly how I actually am. That's exactly right. That's what makes it so hard. I understand why that happens in therapists' offices. Why is that leadership coaching? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. A lot of times, you know, we have this exercise that we teach people and uh, we've borrowed it from something called polyvagal theory in which we ask people to check in at the start of a meeting with red, yellow, green. And um, it's just a simple way to identify how I am. And I get that, pe- that pe- like it, this, like this bright divide that we have in society. Oh, I can't go there. That's going to feel like oh, therapy. Wait a minute, right? Imagine a group of five or six people sitting around trying to do product planning for 2020. Four of them are in the red. Good luck with your product planning session. That's the truth. Right? But we do that anyway. And we tough it out. And we steal ourselves. And we gird ourselves for this. Meanwhile, somebody in the room is dying inside or has a parent who's dying, or a child who's sick, or is in the middle of a divorce. 
that they haven't disclosed. And they may be the most talented person on your team, but they're not 100% there. Right. To me, it's obvious a productivity tool to be able to get the whole person to be able to show up. It's not to turn the product planning session into a therapy session. It's to turn the product planning session into an opportunity for really talented people to bring their whole selves to work. So structurally, how do you do that? I mean, let's talk through the red, yellow, green exercise, and I've actually seen it work before. If people are disclosing what we have come to believe as personal issues in this way, how do you respect it yet draw boundaries around it so that you can actually get the work at hand done? Well, first of all, that's why I like using red, yellow, green and not saying, uh, how are you feeling? Because there's a little distance by naming it as a color. Right. Right. So I can say to you, for example, I'm really in the red and it would feel best for me not to share the details, but I just need you to know that if I'm short with you today, it has nothing to do with you. Oh, good. Now we can just work. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Or I might say, I've got some personal stuff going on that I'm still working through and it's not clear for me what it is, but just give me a little latitude if I'm a little late in replying to your email. That's all. Right. Right. That's not therapy. That's human. Well, this idea of being your whole self, mm. um, it, is, it is an idea, to my mind, that's having its moment. There are a lot of different people that are carving off pieces of it. But I think that the problem with that is that sometimes it gets misinterpreted. So what do we mean when we talk about bringing your whole self to work or to any other engagement? Well, because you said two things there. One is it's having a moment, and then what does it mean? And I want to speak to the moment first. I think part of what's happening is that slowly, 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 we're making it safe to talk about the things that we're uncomfortable with. I don't know that it'll be permanent. I don't know that it'll be forever. Um, I think that elders like myself, that's what I consider myself, who are, are willing to talk about our own struggles are modeling something really, really important, which is that everybody struggles, everybody's trying to figure it out, everybody occasionally feels lost, everybody has a bad night, everybody has fights with a loved one, everybody worries. And it's those facts don't make us broken as people, they make us human. And in that humanity, we get to be connected. But to your real question, which I forgot now. (laughs) (laughs) You've answered the real question, Mm. which is what does it mean to bring your whole self to work or to any other context? Right. I bristle sometimes at the overuse of the words authenticity and vulnerability. Uh, And the reason is that sometimes, just like mindfulness, just like these, these words that become in vogue, it creates an unrealistic standard for people. Um, I like the notion of bringing the whole self, the mess of me, the fullness of me, because there's an implicit permission to be whoever you are in that moment. Now, that doesn't give you the right to spill out all over everybody else. You're still responsible 
to to hold yourself as a, as an adult and hold the container of you. But um, in bringing the whole self to work, um, what I often say to leaders who question, well, if I do this, then what's going to happen to productivity and output and things like that? What I often say is that some of our best and brightest ideas stem from the places that have shaped us and maybe even the places that we think are painful. And so if we want, if, if I am your colleague and I would like you to bring the fullness of your capacity, then that means everything, not just, quote, the good stuff. Well, there was a point in your life when your life was completely outwardly successful. Right. You had hit the marks. People looking at what you were doing by any measure would call right. it successful. And you felt inwardly like you need to re-envision it. Yeah. And so it has made me think differently and newly about your own shift from venture to the great unknown, whatever comes next. Yeah. And I'd love for you to tell us that part of your story. Yeah. So you're referring to my late 30s um, and at the end of my second venture firm, but my best-known venture firm, Flatiron Partners, which I'd launched with Fred Wilson. And you're right. I was outwardly receiving a lot of accolades. And, you know, we, we were getting some criticisms in the early part of Web 1.0 because people were, you know, stocks were declining and all that. But for the most part, the the view was that um, I remember New York Magazine writing about Fred and I and calling us the princes of New York. And, you know, for a kid from Brooklyn, that's pretty, pretty awesome. But the dissonance that I felt was visceral. It was in my body. And I knew that there were feelings that I was having and stuff going on inside that just simply did not match um, the the image that I was putting out, the persona that I was carrying. And it was like I was trapped in an uncomfortable suit of clothes and that was slowly choking me to death. Um, and, it, and there were a whole lot of other forces at play, a culmination of many years of depression that, that, you know, that I would dance with and real questions that go back to my childhood. But, but, but the most catalyzing piece was this dissonance that I was feeling. And I'd actually left Flatiron Partners by that point, uh, joined with J.P. Morgan in their private equity investment group, which used to exist, called J.P. Morgan Partners. And I was part of the team investing in technology. And so it was, I was a, a partner in a $23 billion fund. And so for those who are in the private equity space, they know the size. That's a big fund. Um, we did everything from Brazilian railroads to JetBlue to, you know, tiny little websites kind of thing. And I was in pain. And I would come into the office and I would actually, uh, Carrie Racklin, who's, who works at Union Square Ventures, is still a very, very close friend. She was working with me at the time at J.P. Morgan and she would look up at me and she could just tell from the look on my face and she'd say, bad day, Jer. And I'd say, bad day, Carrie. And she said, okay, I'll cancel your meetings. Mm -hmm. And I would just hide. I would close the blinds in my office and I would just hide. What did you understand about that pain then? I was convinced it was evidence of my unworthiness and my unlovability. 
-hmm. and that all of the whispered beliefs that I had since a child uh, were true and that I was not just a fraud, I was a con artist. Right. And that, um, you know, I, I tell this story in the book about um, running away from uh, after an argument with my mother and making a promise to myself uh, under the Wonder Wheel, the Ferris Wheel in Coney Island, that I was not going to live that life. And the truth is, Jesse, I was living that life. Mm-hmm. Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst, said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. And so what, at that point, shifted? Because here's the thing, Jerry, I think that probably a lot of people, a lot of people listening to this podcast, are walking around in okay positions, feeling like inner frauds, like they don't belong, like they don't want to be doing the thing that they're doing. Right. What precipitated the change? Well, I had a choice. Um, I could die or I could live. And I chose to live. And I don't say that lightly. Those who successfully suicide, which is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Mm. Or more likely than not, have attempted at least once before. And so I was in that space. And I cannot tell you how fortunate I was that I had the wisdom and the clarity. I'd been working with a psychoanalyst, uh, Dr. Sayers, for a number of years at that time. And I, instead of acting on the impulse, called Dr. Sayers. And You've told me about that day. Yeah. And it was a specific day in New York. So Fe- close after 9-11, right? February 2nd, standing outside of uh, Ground Zero, uh, 2002. Dr. Sayers, she sounds like a pretty awesome woman. Uh, I I teared up because she passed away last year mm. and um, at 93. Wow. And we worked together for until about six, seven months before she passed away. Yeah, she she said the right thing to me at the time. What she said to me was I went in and I said, you know, she always used humor. And she said, I said, Dr. Sayers, put me in a hospital. I'm done. And she said, uh, what do you want to go to the hospital for? The food sucks. You're <laughs> rich. Go to Canyon Ranch. You'll get a massage every day. And I needed that. I needed that like, okay, okay. Let's just like, let's make it a little lighter right now. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I went to Canyon Ranch. And, and uh, that was like, for me, that was that moment. It's like, um, I could try to rebuild things. And... You know, in the months afterwards, I, I ended up leaving J.P. Morgan at the end of that year. Um, but And so in the years afterwards, really, I, I kind of just tried to f- figure the shit out. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm really lucky and privileged that I had the capacity to just say, yeah, no, I'm not going to do anything. I mean, I, I was consulting and I was sitting on 22 boards of directors and still being crazy about that but but for the most part I wasn't striving I wasn't pursuing anymore 
Coming up after the break, Jerry talks about how he figured out what to do next. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Okay, back to Jerry. I wanted to know more about coaching other people. You know, the way that you came into this part of your career, as you've described it to me, it's almost as if it were calling to you, as if you didn't go out and secure it, but in fact, it called out to you. Somebody asked you, help me in this way. Absolutely. Do you think that's how careers reveal themselves? I think it's how vocations can reveal themselves. What's the difference? Well, vocation, if you, if you understand the etymology of it, a vocation means a calling from God. Hmm. A career is oftentimes the thing we choose, oftentimes, to either prove our parents right or wrong. <laughs> right? <laughs> how do you but, mean? Well, you know, I remember the, the you know around that time period where a guy came into me um, wanting to connect because he want, he was a lawyer and he wanted to get a job in a startup, and I asked him my simple question of well, what made you want to be a lawyer in the first place? It was obvious he was miserable, and he started talking about pleasing his father. And uh, you know, I believe that. Most of our early unconscious choices are made in response to the wishes for love, safety, and belonging. And sometimes we choose a career so that we belong to our parents, so that they, so we know we fit into the the, the family in a particular way. Um, sometimes we choose a career to live out and quiet the incessant anxieties our parents may have for our safety. So I'll be fill in the blank. This career, my my, I you know I often will say this, you know, um, I can't tell you the number of people who are doctors and lawyers and you know those kinds of professions, because the perception is it's a portable job and you can always make money. Yes. And the truth is so far removed from that, <laughs> right? Is that what we call midlife? Because you know me. <laughs> you know about where I am. Uh, yes, and. Threshold moments like that occur to us time and time again. I do believe that there is a developmental piece of this where the life that we created for ourselves in our 20s, I was talking before about in relationship to our family of origin, we often eventually establish our, our identity in our 20s. And then by the time our 30s roll around, we start to live into that identity. We may couple up, we may, you know, um, advance in our careers, we may buy our first home, our first nest. And part of what starts to happen is that the, the belief that we have carried since childhood, which is that once I figure out all that stuff, then I will feel worthy of love. Well, that starts to not come true. 
And then we're faced with a much deeper, deeper challenge, which is, well, if that's not going to happen, how am I going to feel peace of mind? I mean, I once had a client, very, very prominent VC, come into my office early on in our time together. And he said, I went to all the right schools. I played all the right games. I did it right. Why am I still miserable? And it's at that moment that's ripe with possibility. And it's scary. And there are many, many human beings faced with the privilege of being able to come to that moment of potential actualization and choose to walk away from it. That's, and then we wonder why they're suffering in our organizations. That's got to be a hard choice. It's oftentimes a safe choice. Right. So most of our listeners won't have the opportunity to work with you, mm. but many of them may want to explore some of the things that mm. you think about and work on. Do you have any exercises that have really mattered for you in helping you to do some of this radical self-inquiry on your own? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big, big fan of open, honest questions, open-ended questions beyond even the how are you. And so some of the questions I will often ask people to, to think about, whether it's in a workshop or a presentation or something like that, or, you know, as I mentioned before, if your child or a nephew or a niece were to come to work for your organization, how would you feel? What kind of adult are you becoming? Because I think we're always in the process of that becoming. And what kind of leader do you aspire to be? You know, implicit in the question of what kind of leader is the notion that there are more than one kind of leader. And I think that that's really important and really liberating. I think, for example, a lot of people are walking around with the belief system that there's some hidden playbook, some secret way to lead that no one has told them. There are so many books on leadership that make it into a 10-part formula. And I, I'll tell you, books on leadership that do that and books on well-being do that too. And I think that they do a disservice, to be honest. I think there are a lot, there's a lot of good wisdom hidden in those books. But the problem with the packaging is um, they tend to reinforce the negative self-view that I don't know what I'm doing. Hmm. And... Um, the truth is, I often think of uh, my Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron's teachings on the pathless path. This is a much harder path to leadership. You mean I have to figure it out myself? Yes. The good news is, if we can normalize the process of talking about these issues, if we can destigmatize the fact that it's hard, right? We can then have dialogue that says, what was it like for you? And then you share that with me, and then I can glean from that wisdom that I might need to hear. Not methodology that leads to some sort of perfect output, right. but a way of being that is integrated and, quite frankly, in accordance with that vocational calling, with that notion of who am I to be in the world? So when it comes to trying to decode and answer some of that for ourselves, Jerry, I know that you're a 
you're a fan of journaling. Yeah. I'm a fan of uh, handwriting, even though my handwriting is uh, indecipherable and incomprehensible, even to me. Um, (laughs) Because I like to make the experience as whole body as possible. And I've been doing this since I was a kid. Um, And I generally start off with right now I'm feeling or some variation on that. Um, And it's a kind of how are you to myself. Do you do it at the same time every day? Yeah, I I wake usually between five and six. Um, I make coffee or tea and I journal um, usually for 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And then I will sit in meditation and... um, I try as best as I can not to even glance at the phone. I'm pretty good about that. And I try not to, uh, as I say, leave that sleep zone, that quasi-sleep zone, because I think it's a very rich transitional time in the morning. And I I look at my friend Jesse and I I will say, "Um, yes, when I had munchkins, this was really hard. <laughs> I could ever wake up earlier than Jude, but man, he, he seems to really like 5, 10 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> but did you do it then? Yeah, I did. It's really easy to blame the reason for not doing it on external things, especially kids. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I and I don't want to make light of the fact that just balancing all the demands of of you know, a complex uh, dual-income family with caregiving and maybe even taking care of parents and a relentless kind of thing is is really, really hard. But um, I also believe that there, there are moments of breath that are available to us throughout the day. And, 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 I, I realize I may be coming across as kind of judgmental. I'm not. I just know that this has worked for me. Right. And each journaling session feels like a therapy session for me. And you don't go back and read them, right? I do not go back. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> You're writing. But it so I keep bad. them. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't get rid of them. They're all locked away in a in a storage unit. Right. So. Well, so at the end of that piece, I wrote about you a couple of years ago, I attempted to sum up what you were getting at, and uh, we never got to talk about it. So I want to read it to you, oh. and I want you to tell me if, I, if I'm if i close. Mm. Resilience. That's what Kelowna aims for in his coaching. Sure, he'd like the entrepreneurs with whom he works to kill it at their jobs. Mm. He'd like them to be happier because he doesn't want to be happier. But really, he wants everyone to figure out what he has figured out the very hard way. Life sucks and it's okay. Life is great and it's okay. Life goes up and it's okay. Life goes down and it's okay. That's it. I think that if we can each hold on to that, that's right. First of all, you got it. And second, if we can each hold on to that and go in about our days, we will be better parents better partners, better leaders, better colleagues, better citizens, and we'll be better humans. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in to see me today, Jerry. Thank you. That was Jerry Colonna. If you want more of his tips, check out his book. It's called Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. 
And if you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You know, I keep thinking about his red, yellow, green approach to meetings. Meetings drive me crazy. There are some I need, but a lot that I don't. And even when I need them, sometimes they feel unruly. So listeners, I want to hear about your best meetings and your worst ones. What makes meetings work? Email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com or post about the show on LinkedIn using the hashtag hellomonday. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. Next week, I'll talk to the writer Roxanne Gay about making a career out of sharing her personal stories and how that work intersects with her teaching. Oftentimes what students need is to be told that they can achieve greatness in their own way. They need to be told that they have power and the ability to wield that power effectively. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Laura Sim. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini makes the trains run. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We also used music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday, and thanks for listening. Because you have a son. He's not walking around right now. I don't know if 10 months he's walking, but he's not walking around saying, I don't know what I want to do for a living, right? He's, He's just imbibing the environment of his parents' constructs. Right. You know, it's funny. I think so much right now about how now that I have a son newly, um, he's going to learn everything about who to be in the world, not by what I tell him to do, but just who I am. Yes. And so if there was ever a window in which I hadn't quite figured out how to love myself, if I hadn't quite figured out how to trust that I was safe, to trust that I was enough, I got to solve that right now. Because from this moment and every moment on, whatever he believes for the rest of his life will be shaped by what I believe right this second. Yeah, I, 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 amen, sister. That's it. That's it.